Chapter One, Part F of the Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Five, Chapter One, Part F of the Expenses of the Sovereign or Commonwealth. In England, it becomes every day more and more the custom to send young people to travel in foreign countries immediately upon their leaving school, and without sending them to any university. Our young people, it is said, generally return home much improved by their travels. A young man who goes abroad at seventeen or eighteen, and returns home at one and twenty, returns three or four years older than he was when he went abroad. and at that age it is very difficult not to improve a good deal in three or four years in the course of his travels he generally acquires some knowledge of one or two foreign languages a knowledge however which is seldom sufficient to enable him either to speak or write them with propriety in other respects he commonly returns home more conceited more unprincipled more dissipated and more incapable of any serious application either to study or to business than he could well have become in so short a time had he lived at home by travelling so very young by spending in the most frivolous dissipation the most previous years of his life at a distance from the inspection and control of his parents and relations every useful habit which the earlier parts of his education might have had some tendency to form in him instead of being riveted and confirmed is almost necessarily either weakened or effaced nothing but the discredit into which the universities are allowing themselves to fall could ever have brought into repute so very absurd a practice as that of travelling at this early period of life by sending his son abroad a father delivers himself at least for some time from so disagreeable an object as that of a son unemployed neglected and going to ruin before his eyes such have been the effects of some of the modern institutions for education different plans and different institutions for education seem to have taken place in other ages and nations in the republics of ancient greece every free citizen was instructed under the direction of the public magistrate in gymnastic exercises and in music by gymnastic exercises it was intended to harden his body to sharpen his courage and to prepare him for the fatigues and dangers of war and as the greek militia was by all accounts one of the best that ever was in the world this part of their public education must have answered completely the purpose for which it was intended by the other part music it was proposed at least by the philosophers and historians who have given us an account of those institutions to humanize the mind to soften the temper and to dispose it for performing all the social and moral duties of public and private life in ancient rome the exercises of the campus martius answer the same purpose as those of the gymnasium in ancient greece and they seem to have answered it equally well but among the romans there was nothing which corresponded to the musical education of the greeks the morals of the romans however both in private and public life seem to have been not only equal but upon the whole a good deal superior to those of the greeks that they were superior in private life we have the express testimony of polybius and of dionysius of holocarnassus two authors well acquainted with both nations and the whole tenor of the greek and roman history bears witness to the superiority of the public morals of the romans 
the good temper and moderation of contending factions seem to be the most essential circumstances in the public morals of a free people but the factions of the greeks were almost always violent and sanguinary whereas till the time of the gracchi no blood had ever been shed in any roman faction and from the time of the gracchi the roman republic may be considered as in reality dissolved notwithstanding however the very respectable authority of plato aristotle and polybius and notwithstanding the very ingenious reasons by which mr montesquieu endeavours to support that authority it seems probable that the musical education of the greeks had no great effect in mending their morals since without any such education those of the romans were upon the whole superior the respect of those ancient sages for the institutions of their ancestors had probably disposed them to find much political wisdom in what was perhaps merely an ancient custom continued without interruption from the earliest part of those societies to the times in which they had arrived at a considerable degree of refinement music and dancing are the great amusements of almost all barbarous nations and the great accomplishments which are supposed to fit any man for entertaining his society it is so at this day among the negroes on the coast of africa it was so among the ancient celts among the ancient scandinavians and as we may learn from homer among the ancient greeks in the times preceding the trojan war when the greek tribes had formed themselves into little republics it was natural that the study of those accomplishments should for a long time make a part of the public and common education of the people the masters who instructed the young people either in music or in military exercises do not seem to have been paid or even appointed by the state either in rome or even at athens the greek republic of whose laws and customs we are the best informed the state required that every free citizen should fit himself for defending it in war and should upon that account learn his military exercises but it left him to learn them of such masters as he could find and it seems to have advanced nothing for this purpose but a public field or place of exercise in which he should practice and perform them in the early ages both of the greek and roman republics the other parts of education seem to have consisted in learning to read write and account according to the arithmetic of the times these accomplishments the richer citizens seem frequently to have acquired at home by the assistance of some domestic pedagogue who is generally either a slave or a freedman and the poorer citizens in the schools of such masters as made a trade of teaching for hire such parts of education however were abandoned altogether to the care of the parents or guardians of each individual it does not appear that the state ever assumed any inspection or direction of them by law of solon indeed the children were acquitted from maintaining those parents who had neglected to instruct them in some profitable trade or business in the progress of refinement when philosophy and rhetoric came into fashion the better sort of people used to send their children to the schools of philosophers and rhetoricians in order to be instructed in these fashionable sciences but those schools were not supported by the public they were for a long time barely tolerated by it the demand for philosophy and rhetoric was for a long time so small that the first professed teachers of either could not find constant employment in any one city but were obliged to travel about from place to place in this manner lived zeno of alia protagoras gorgias hippias and many others as the demand increased the school both of philosophy and rhetoric became stationary first in athens and afterwards in several other cities 
The state, however, seems never to have encouraged them further than by assigning to some of them a particular place to teach in, which was sometimes done, too, by private donors. The state seems to have assigned the academy to Plato, the Lyceum to Aristotle, and the portico to Zena of Sita, the founder of the Stoics. But Epicurus bequeathed his gardens to his own school. Till about the time of Marcus Antonius, however, no teacher appears to have had any salary from the public, or to have had any other emoluments, but what arose from the honorarius, or fees, of his scholars. The bounty which that philosophical emperor, as we learn from Lucian, bestowed upon one of the teachers of philosophy, probably lasted no longer than his own life. There was nothing equivalent to the privileges of graduation, and to have attended any of those schools was not necessary in order to be permitted to practice any particular trade or profession. If the opinion of their own utility could not draw scholars to them, the law neither forced anybody to go to them nor rewarded anybody for having gone to them. The teachers had no jurisdiction over their pupils, nor any other authority besides that natural authority which superior virtue and abilities never fail to procure from young people towards those who are entrusted with any part of their education. At Rome, the study of the civil law made a part of the education, not of the greater part of the citizens, but of some particular families. The young people, however, who wished to acquire knowledge in the law, had no public school to go to and had no other method of studying it than by frequenting the company of such of their relations and friends as were supposed to understand it. It is perhaps worth while to remark that though the laws of the twelve tables were many of them copied from those of some ancient Greek republics, yet law never seems to have grown up to be a science in any republic of ancient Greece. In Rome it became a science very early, and gave a considerable degree of illustration to those citizens who had the reputation of understanding it. In the republics of ancient Greece, particularly in Athens, the ordinary courts of justice consisted of numerous, and therefore disorderly, bodies of people, who frequently decided almost at random, or as clamor, faction, and party spirit, happened to determine. The ignominy of an unjust decision, when it was to be divided among five hundred, a thousand, or fifteen hundred people, for some of their courts were so very numerous, could not fall very heavy upon any individual. At Rome, on the contrary, the principal courts of justice consisted either of a single judge or of a small number of judges, whose characters, especially as they deliberated always in public, could not fail to be very much affected by any rash or unjust decision. In doubtful cases such as courts, from their anxiety to avoid blame, would naturally endeavor to shelter themselves under the example or precedent of the judges who had sat before them, either in the same or in some other court. This attention to practice and precedent necessarily formed the Roman law into that regular and orderly system in which it has been delivered down to us, and the like attention has had the like effects upon the laws of every other country where such attention has taken place. The superiority of character in the Romans over that of the Greeks, so much remarked by Polybius and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, was probably more owing to the better constitution of their courts of justice than any of the circumstances to which those authors ascribe it. The Romans are said to have been particularly distinguished for their superior respect to an oath. But the people who were accustomed to make oath only before some diligent and well-informed court of justice would naturally be much more attentive to what they swore than they who were accustomed to do the same thing before mobbish and disorderly assemblies. 
the abilities both civil and military of the greeks and romans will readily be allowed to have been at least equal to those of any modern nation our prejudice is perhaps rather to overrate them but except in what related to military exercises the state seems to have been at no pains to form those great abilities for i cannot be induced to believe that the musical education of the greeks could be of much consequence in forming them masters however had been found it seems for instructing the better sort of people among those nations in every art and science in which the circumstances of their society rendered it necessary or convenient for them to be instructed the demand for such instruction produced what it always produces the talent for giving it and the emulation which an unrestrained competition never fails to excite appears to have brought that talent to a very high degree of perfection in the attention which the ancient philosophers excited in the empire which they acquired over the opinions and principles of their auditors in the faculty which they possessed of giving a certain tone and character to the conduct and conversation of those auditors they appear to have been much superior to any modern teachers in modern times the diligence of public teachers is more or less corrupted by the circumstances which render them more or less independent of their success and reputation in their particular professions their salaries too put the private teacher who would pretend to come into competition with them in the same state with a merchant who attempts to trade without a bounty in competition with those who trade with a considerable one if he sells his goods at nearly the same price he cannot have the same profit and poverty and beggary at least if not bankruptcy and ruin will infallibly be his lot if he attempts to sell them much dearer he is likely to have so few customers that his circumstances will not be much mended the privileges of graduation besides are in many countries necessary or at least extremely convenient to most men of learned professions that is to the far greater part of those who have occasion for a learned education but those privileges can be obtained only by attending the lectures of the public teachers the most careful attendance upon the ablest instructions of any private teacher cannot always give any title to demand them it is from these different causes that the private teacher of any of the sciences which are commonly taught in universities is in modern times generally considered as in the very lowest order of men of letters a man of real abilities can scarce find out a more humiliating or a more unprofitable employment to turn them to the endowments of schools and colleges have in this manner not only corrupted the diligence of public teachers but have rendered it almost impossible to have any good private ones were there no public institutions for education no system no science would be taught for which there was not some demand or which the circumstances of the times did not render it either necessary or convenient or at least fashionable to learn a private teacher could never find his account in teaching either an exploded or antiquated system of a science acknowledged to be useful or a science universally believed to be a mere useless and pedantic heap of sophistry and nonsense such systems such sciences can subsist nowhere but in those incorporated societies for education whose prosperity and revenue are in a great measure independent of their industry were there no public institutions for education a gentleman after going through with application and abilities the most complete course of education which the circumstances of the times were supposed to afford could not come into the world completely ignorant of everything which is the common subject of conversation among gentlemen and men of the world 
there are no public institutions for the education of women, and there is accordingly nothing useless, absurd, or fantastical in the common course of their education. They are taught what their parents or guardians judge it necessary or useful for them to learn, and they are taught nothing else. Every part of their education tends evidently to some useful purpose, either to improve the natural attractions of their person, or to form their mind to reserve, to modesty, to chastity, and to economy, to render them both likely to become the mistresses of a family, and to behave properly when they have become such. In every part of her life a woman feels some conveniency or advantage from every part of her education. It seldom happens that a man, in any part of his life, derives any conveniency or advantage from some of the most laborious and troublesome parts of his education. Ought the public, therefore, to give no attention, it may be asked, to the education of the people? Or, if it ought to give any, what are the different parts of education which it ought to attend to in the different orders of the people? And in what manner ought it to attend to them? In some cases, the state of society necessarily places the greater part of individuals in such situations as naturally form in them, without any attention of government, almost all the abilities and virtues which that state requires, or perhaps can admit of. In other cases, the state of the society does not place the greater part of individuals in such situations, and some attention of government is necessary in order to prevent the almost entire corruption and degeneracy of the great body of the people. In the progress of the division of labor, the employment of the far greater part of those who live by labor, that is, of the great body of the people, comes to be confined to a few very simple operations, frequently to one or two. But the understandings of the greater part of men are necessarily formed by their ordinary employments. The man whose whole life is spent in performing a few simple operations, of which the effects, too, are perhaps always the same, or very nearly the same, has no occasion to exert his understanding or to exercise his invention in finding out expedients for removing difficulties which never occur. He naturally loses, therefore, the habit of such exertion, and generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become. The torpor of his mind renders him not only incapable of relishing or bearing a part in any rational conversation, but of conceiving any generous, noble, or tender sentiment, and consequently of forming any just judgment concerning many even of the ordinary duties of private life. Of the great and extensive interest of his country he is altogether incapable of judging, and unless very particular pains have been taken to render him otherwise, he is equally incapable of defending his country in war. The uniformity of his stationary life naturally corrupts the courage of his mind, and makes him regard, with abhorrence, the irregular, uncertain, and adventurous life of a soldier. It corrupts even the activity of his body, and renders him incapable of exerting his strength with vigor and perseverance in any other employment than that to which he has been bred. His dexterity at his own particular trade seems, in this manner, to be acquired at the expense of his intellectual, social, and martial virtues. But in every improved and civilized society, this is the state into which the laboring poor, that is, the great body of the people, must necessarily fall, unless government takes some pains to prevent it. It is otherwise in the barbarous societies, as they are commonly called, of hunters, of shepherds, and even of husbandmen, in that rude state of husbandry which precedes the improvement of manufactures, and the extension of foreign commerce. 
in such societies the varied occupations of every man oblige every man to exert his capacity and to invent expedients for removing difficulties which are continually occurring invention is kept alive and the mind is not suffered to fall into that drowsy stupidity which in a civilized society seems to benumb the understanding of almost all the inferior ranks of people in those barbarous societies as they are called every man it has already been observed is a warrior every man too is in some measure a statesman and can form a tolerable judgment concerning the interest of the society and the conduct of those who govern it how far their chiefs are good judges in peace or good leaders in war is obvious to the observation of almost every single man among them in such a society indeed no man can well acquire that improved and refined understanding which a few men sometimes possess in a more civilized state though in a rude society there is a good deal of variety in the occupations of every individual there is not a great deal in those of the whole society every man does or is capable of doing almost everything which any other man does or is capable of being every man has a considerable degree of knowledge ingenuity and invention but scarce any man has a great degree the degree however which is commonly possessed is generally sufficient for conducting the whole simple business of the society in a civilized state on the contrary though there is little variety in the occupations of the greater part of individuals there is an almost infinite variety in those of the whole society these varied occupations present an almost infinite variety of objects to the contemplation of those few who being attached to no particular occupation themselves have leisure and inclination to examine the occupations of other people the contemplation of so great a variety of objects necessarily exercises their minds in endless comparisons and combinations and renders their understandings in an extraordinary degree both acute and comprehensive unless those few however happen to be placed in some very particular situations their great abilities though honorable to themselves may contribute very little to the good government or happiness of their society notwithstanding the great abilities of those few all the nobler parts of the human character may be in a great measure obliterated and extinguished in the great body of the people the education of the common people requires perhaps in a civilized and commercial society the attention of the public more than that of people of some rank and fortune people of some rank and fortune are generally eighteen or nineteen years of age before they enter upon that particular business profession or trade by which they propose to distinguish themselves in the world they have before that full time to acquire or at least to fit themselves for afterwards acquiring every accomplishment which can recommend them to the public esteem or render them worthy of it their parents or guardians are generally sufficiently anxious that they should be so accomplished and are in most cases willing enough to lay out the expense which is necessary for that purpose if they are not always properly educated it is seldom from the want of expense laid out upon their education but from the improper application of that expense it is seldom from the want of masters but from the negligence and incapacity of the masters who are to be had and from the difficulty or rather from the impossibility which there is in the present state of things of finding any better the employments too in which people of some rank or fortune spend the greater part of their lives are not like those of the common people simple and uniform they are almost all of them extremely complicated and such as exercise the head more than the hands 
The understandings of those who are engaged in such employments can seldom grow torpid for want of exercise. The employments of people of some rank and fortune, besides, are seldom such as harass them from morning to night. They generally have a good deal of leisure, during which they may perfect themselves in every branch, either of useful or ornamental knowledge, of which they may have laid the foundation, or for which they may have acquired some taste in the earlier part of life. It is otherwise with the common people. They have little time to spare for education. Their parents can scarce afford to maintain them, even in infancy. As soon as they are able to work, they must apply to some trade, by which they can earn their subsistence. That trade, too, is generally so simple and uniform, as to give little exercise to the understanding, while at the same time their labor is both so constant and so severe, that it leaves them little leisure and less inclination to apply to, or even to think of, anything else. But though the common people cannot, in any civilized society, be so well instructed as people of some rank and fortune, the most essential parts of education, however, to read, write, and account, can be acquired at so early a period of life, that the greater part, even of those who are to be bred to the lowest occupations, have time to acquire them before they can be employed in those occupations. For a very small expense, the public can facilitate, can encourage, and can even impose upon almost the whole body of the people, the necessity of acquiring those most essential parts of education. The public can facilitate this acquisition by establishing in every parish or district a little school, where children may be taught for a reward so moderate that even a common laborer may afford it, the master being partly, but not wholly, paid by the public because if he was wholly or even principally paid by it he would soon learn to neglect his business in scotland the establishment of such parish schools has taught almost the whole common people to read and a very great proportion of them to write and account in england the establishment of charity schools has had an effect of the same kind though not so universally because the establishment is not so universal if in those little schools the books by which the children are taught to read were a little more instructive than they commonly are and if instead of a little smattering in latin which the children of the common people are sometimes taught there and which can scarce ever be of any use to them they were instructed in the elementary parts of geometry and mechanics the literary education of this rank of people would perhaps be as complete as can be there is scarce a common trade which does not afford some opportunities of applying it to the principles of geometry and mechanics and which would not therefore gradually exercise and improve the common people in those principles the necessary introduction to the most sublime as well as to the most useful sciences the public can encourage the acquisition of those most essential parts of education by giving small premiums and little badges of distinction to the children of the common people who excel in them the public can impose upon almost the whole body of the people the necessity of acquiring the most essential parts of education, by obliging every man to undergo an examination or probation in them, before he can obtain the freedom in any corporation, or be allowed to set up any trade, either in a village or town corporate. It was in this manner, by facilitating the acquisition of the military and gymnastic exercises, by encouraging it, and even by imposing upon the whole body of the people the necessity of learning those exercises, that the Greek and Roman republics maintained the martial spirit of their respective citizens. They facilitated the acquisition of those exercises by appointing a certain place for learning and practicing them, 
and by granting to certain masters the privilege of teaching in that place. Those masters do not appear to have had either salaries or exclusive privileges of any kind. Their reward consisted altogether in what they got from their scholars, and a citizen who had learned his exercises in the public gymnasia had no sort of legal advantage over one who had learnt them privately, provided the latter had learnt them equally well. Those republics encouraged the acquisition of those exercises by bestowing little premiums and badges of distinction upon those who excelled in them. To have gained a prize in the Olympic, Isthmian, or Nemean games gave illustration not only to the person who gained it, but to his whole family and kindred. The obligation which every citizen was under, to serve a certain number of years, if called upon, in the armies of the republic, sufficiently imposed the necessity of learning those exercises without which he could not be fit for that service. That in the progress of improvement, the practice of military exercises, unless government takes proper pains to support it, goes gradually to decay, and together with it the martial spirit of the great body of the people, the example of modern Europe sufficiently demonstrates. But the security of every society must always depend, more or less, upon the martial spirit of the great body of the people. In the present times, indeed, that martial spirit alone, and unsupported by a well-disciplined standing army, would not, perhaps, be sufficient for the defense and security of any society. But where every citizen had the spirit of a soldier, a smaller standing army would surely be requisite. That spirit, besides, would necessarily diminish very much the dangers to liberty, whether real or imaginary, which are commonly apprehended from a standing army. As it would very much facilitate the operations of that army against a foreign invader, so it would obstruct them as much, if unfortunately they should ever be directed against the constitution of the state. The ancient institutions of Greece and Rome seem to have been much more effectual for maintaining the martial spirit of the great body of the people than the establishment of what are called the militias of modern times. They were much more simple. When they were once established, they executed themselves, and it required little or no attention from government to maintain them in the most perfect vigor. Whereas to maintain, even in tolerable execution, the complex regulations of any modern militia requires the continual and painful attention of government, without which they are constantly falling into total neglect and disuse. The influence, besides, of the ancient institutions was much more universal. By means of them, the whole body of the people was completely instructed in the use of arms, whereas it is but a very small part of them who can ever be so instructed by the regulations of any modern militia, except perhaps that of Switzerland. But a coward, a man incapable either of defending or of revenging himself, evidently wants one of the most essential parts of the character of a man. He is as much mutilated and deformed in his mind as another is in his body, who is either deprived of some of its most essential members, or has lost the use of them. He is evidently the more wretched and miserable of the two, because happiness and misery, which reside altogether in the mind, must necessarily depend more upon the healthful or unhealthful, the mutilated or entire state of the mind, than upon that of the body. Even though the martial spirit of the people were of no use towards the defense of the society, yet to prevent that sort of mental mutilation, deformity, and wretchedness, which cowardice necessarily involves in it, from spreading themselves through the great body of the people, would still deserve the most serious attention of government, in the same manner as it would deserve its most serious attention to prevent a leprosy or any other loathsome and offensive disease, 
though neither mortal nor dangerous, from spreading itself among them, though perhaps no other public good might result from such attention, besides the prevention of so great a public evil. The same thing may be said of the gross ignorance and stupidity, which, in a civilized society, seem so frequently to benumb the understandings of all the inferior ranks of people. A man, without the proper use of the intellectual faculties of a man, is, if possible, more contemptible than even a coward, and seems to be mutilated and deformed in a still more essential part of the character of human nature. Though the state was to derive no advantage from the instruction of the inferior ranks of people, it would still deserve its attention that they should not be altogether uninstructed. The state, however, derives no inconsiderable advantage from their instruction. The more they are instructed, the less liable they are to the delusions of enthusiasm and superstition, which among ignorant nations frequently occasion the most dreadful disorders. An instructed and intelligent people, besides, are always more decent and orderly than an ignorant and stupid one. They feel themselves, each individually, more respectable and more likely to obtain the respect of their lawful superiors, and they are, therefore, more disposed to respect those superiors. They are more disposed to examine, and more capable of seeing through, the interested complaints of faction and sedition, and they are, upon that account, less apt to be misled into any wanton or unnecessary opposition to the measures of government. In free countries, where the safety of government depends very much upon the favorable judgment which the people may form of its conduct, it must surely be of the highest importance that they should not be disposed to judge rashly or capriciously concerning it. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part F.